0: Hey everyone! Welcome back to in Apologetics. I'm super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Kenny Pierce. He's a professor of philosophy at James Madison University. Um, he's a historian of modern philosophy. He's obsessed with some dude named Berkeley um, that no one's ever heard of. Um, he's done work in Trinity College of Dublin, um, and he's all kind of interesting, like thoughts about like metaphysics and philosophy of science, and like looking at like those old dead people of the 17th and 18th cent- century. So, Kenny, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you for having me on. So, do you want to talk a little bit, Kenny, about like who you are, what you do, and kind of like what your work is all about before we dive into contingency arguments? Sure. So, uh,
1: so like you said, I'm I'm into those old dead guys from 17th and 18th centuries, and um, that's kind of where my scholarly work got started—is working on historical figures like Leibniz and Berkeley. And um, but I but you know I'm a, a Christian myself and. My pathway into that scholarly endeavor came from asking a lot of hard questions about God and um, that sort of thing. And so a lot of those ideas that I find in historical philosophers, I think, are are useful for us still in trying to think about God today and about other aspects of, of Christian faith and about the world and our place in it. And so I've also written on on some of those topics about uh, the existence of God and God's relation to creation and um, about finding human freedom, informed by those historical figures, but also in dialogue with recent analytic philosophy.
0: Mm, That's super cool, Kenny. So I wonder then, like, like, before we get into contingency arguments, What do you find so valuable when looking at like the 17th and like 18th century thinkers? Like, what's kind of like kept you in their world where you're still like reading them and reflecting on them? And like, why are you still there?
1: Yeah. So, I guess part of the way I got started is, you know, I was into all these religious and theological questions. And that was really tangled up with how I was even approaching philosophy and why the questions Mm -hmm. were important. And when I first started my undergraduate work, I, I was at the University of Pennsylvania. Big secular university that has a lot of, whose philosophy department has always been very strong in history. Uh, and I found that the people who were doing non historical philosophy there, the, the professors who were doing non historical work, mostly just weren't asking or interested in the same questions as I was because I'm, mm. you know, motivated by these theological issues. But the historical philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries were. And in particular, their, in the shadow of the scientific revolution. And so we've got this new way of looking at the world, a mechanistic picture that sees the world as a grand machine, thinks, you know, we've just got all these kind of little bits of matter bumping into each other, and that's going to explain everything instead of the old Aristotelian picture. And you've got people who are wondering, what does that mean, Uh, not just for our beliefs about God, but for a lot of other related things, right? Like, mm-hmm. you might worry, as people today still do worry, if love is just a chemical reaction in my brain, what reason do I have to go on, yeah. right? And, like, is that a good question or is it confused? And all these sorts of things are the way these 17th and 18th century philosophers are are framing or seeing the philosophical questions, and they're all responding to those issues in different ways that I just think provide... Um, a lot of inspiration for how we who still live in the shadow of the scientific revolution uh should be viewing the world and and how we can kind of do our philosophical work particularly for those of us who are looking to put a scientific worldview uh together with a, a christian picture of the world
0: mm. okay so I like this like, – what you're doing, Kenny, is because, like, you're really, like, trying to draw back on, like, these thinkers and what they're doing and, like, seeing how their ideas can, like, impact, like, thought today. Because I think some people would think that, like, in, like – especially, like, contingency arguments, they'd be like, like, why start with Descartes? Or, like, why start with, like, Aquinas? Like, that's going way back. Like, why start with all these thinkers? Like, obviously, like, philosophy, like, we're past them. Their arguments are trash. They're gone. we got to look at, like, the new arguments. And what you want to say is, like, hey, we should, like, start from these historical roots because they gonna help us, like, see these arguments, like, more clearly.
1: Yeah, well, and if you're talking about contingency arguments in particular, you know, my own work was, uh, I started writing about contingency arguments in contemporary philosophy of religion, because I, I read the people writing about them now, and I thought, you know, this argument doesn't have all the advantages that those historical medieval and early modern proponents of the contingency argument said the argument had. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if these people, if the analytic philosophers are are getting the argument wrong uh, and if there's actually a better version found back there in those historical figures. And I think especially Leibniz is giving a a better version of the argument than a lot of the ones that you can see in more recent philosophers.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's super cool, Kenny. So let's start, like, diving into contingency arguments then. Um, so, like, broadly speaking, if we ask, like, what is a contingency argument, how would, what, what would you say, Kenny? Right.
1: So I'd say it's – we could talk about a contingency argument as any argument for the existence of God that starts with the question, why is there something rather than nothing or some mm-hmm. similar question, right? So these are types of cosmological arguments. Cosmological arguments are arguments that try to get to the existence of God from the fact that there is a universe at all, rather than like a design argument that would rely on specific observations about what the universe is like. Cosmological arguments are saying, if there's a universe at all, then we have good reason to believe in God. And contingency arguments are, are then starting from this question, why is there something rather than nothing? And so those differ from first cause arguments, the other main category of cosmological arguments, um, which ask, uh, you know, what started everything? Where did everything come from? Uh, what happened before the beginning of the universe? Something like that, depending on which particular formulation you're looking at. The uh, arguments from contingency are just starting from, there is a universe, there didn't have to be a universe. Why is that? And and they think we can proceed from there.
2: Mm.
0: So contingency the arguments, like I like how you talked about like the root being like that old question that like like before ever and, like even like new philosophy was a thing of like that question of like you wonder like well why is there something rather than nothing and, like you're right. like you're saying like that's kind of the root of all contingency arguments.
1: Yeah, I think this is true of of good philosophy in general. That there's some there's some question that you could pose to kind of any person on the street or Mm -hmm. that people you know people in a wide variety of cultures come up with and worry about, not necessarily every culture, but you know, something that's kind of there's a question that's kind of cross-cultural, that's accessible to somebody who hasn't studied philosophy yet, and Mm -hmm. and so on, that that actually matters to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, you get deep into the weeds, you go down these rabbit holes, but I think Good philosophy. We can always trace the pathway back to that Mm. kind of question, a question like, you know, why is there anything at all um, that that anybody could could get into and care about.
0: Good philosophy starts with like good big questions like this that a lot of people like like you could talk to like I could stop someone on the street tomorrow as I'm walking down like Lynchburg like why is there something rather than nothing and it's probably something that like maybe they don't have this like deep answer for but like they've probably thought about it before so yeah I love that Kenny so what are like maybe let's get into like the history now like and I think this is something that I think will be helpful because I'm like people will be like yeah I I know the contingency argument. A lot of them don't really start with like the history, like if things I've listened to that break down the argument. So, like, what are like some of the historical examples? Like when we look at the contingency argument for God?
1: Yeah, so you can trace the argument from contingency really far back, depending on how broadly you define it. Like maybe Parmenides, all the way back before Socrates, has something like a contingency argument insofar as he thinks that they're you know the one. Must be one. So there's there's kind of an ultimate explainer, an ultimate reality. So Michael Della Rocca thinks that Parmenides, in his recent book, The Parmenidean Ascent, you know, that Parmenides is starting from this explanatory demand that we need to explain everything and we're going to come back to an ultimate unity if we do that. But when we get something that looks more like what we expect, that makes an argument from contingency for the existence of something like a, a God in a monotheistic religion, probably the best place to, to look for the starting point of that is Ibn Sina.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and he's, he's drawing on a tradition of, of Platonists and so forth, but he is uh, one of the early classical Islamic philosophers. Uh, and he starts out by saying, look, there are these contingent things things whose reason for existence can't be found within themselves right so whatever you think about me or my chair or my table there is no explanation internal to me for why yeah. I should exist right that explanation of my existence has to be external you explain me in terms of my parents or whatever. Um, now, that Ibn Sina thinks can't, uh, can't go on forever, those external or extrinsic explanations, we have to ultimately come back to something whose reason for existence is found within itself, mm. which, which is what we call God, or Ibn Sina says, the necessary existent, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But he wants to think that the necessary existence existent is uh, the god described in the Quran. So this is the kind of background to the similar arguments that we get in Aquinas's five ways. Can I just
0: stop you really quick just to take this slowly, Kenny? So Ibn Sina, he's saying that like everything has a reason for its existence and that's going to and that's going to convince a necessary thing.
1: Do I have you right? It's Yeah, so so for any given thing, it's got a reason for its existence that has to be either internal or external Mm, to you. Okay, yeah. Right? Either you've got, either just by considering the kind of thing you are, we can see why you exist, Mm -hmm. or else we have to appeal to something outside you to explain your existence. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it couldn't be that everything has the extrinsic kind of reason.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so this is Ibn Sina, like, I just Googled it, and according to the amazing source of Wikipedia, born in 980 80, dies 1037 80. is, like, is there anyone deeper that he draws this off of, or is it just, like, he just kind of, like, wakes up one day, or, like, in his career develops the argument, Um, like, yeah.
1: Well, I think this is certainly going back in the Platonic tradition, so all this kind of school, it's known as Falsafa, which is the kind of arabic version of the word philosophy actually there's a a school of islamic philosophy that's drawing on greek sources okay and so it's very neoplatonic um and they tend to interpret plato and aristotle as really going together and having one shared philosophy and only disagreeing about some details a lot of the medieval christian philosophers read them that way as well but but there's a lot of kind of Plato's form of the good as the ultimate explanation of everything or the form of the one that this is coming back to. But what's really original to Ibn Sina and really enormously important for the subsequent tradition that is the, the like reason why if you don't have Ibn Sina, you don't get Thomas Aquinas. The, the key point is that he thinks very carefully about this distinction between essence and existence. Mm, okay, And that's the thing that's really original. So the, the essence is what it is to be a certain kind of thing, like what it is to be mm-hmm. a horse, which is different than the horse actually existing. Right. And so it's, it's one thing to say what it is for something to be a horse and another thing for there to be an actual horse. Mm-hmm. And, and these concepts are in Aristotle, for instance. But Ibn Sina pays a lot of attention to carefully examining and analyzing these concepts. And then he has this view that um, for God, there is no difference between essence and existence. God's essence and existence are one and the same. Everything else has an essence distinct from its existence, an existence distinct from its essence, if you like, and because the essence and existence of other things are not the same, that's why they need some kind of like extra oomph. Mm, yeah. Something outside has to push them from merely possible being to actual being. Mm. And it's only the necessary, the ultimately simple necessary being, God or the necessary existent, in which essence and existence are identified. And so that's probably the most influential idea in Ibn Sina. And as far as I know, there isn't anybody before him who is kind of making all of that clear and explicit. Okay. These ideas are coming out of the Platonic and Aristotelian tradition.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thanks for that, Kenny. So maybe you want to pick back up before I kind of interrupted you there.
1: Yeah, so so we do get this. We do get really similar forms of uh, the argument in the Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides and the Christian philosopher Thomas Aquinas over the next couple of centuries. The probably most influential and best known version of the contingency argument today, though, is from uh, Gottfried Leibniz, who is uh, in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. And the the short, simple form of the argument of his that I really like is in this little book called, little kind of essay, on the ultimate origination of things, mm. is, is the title. Uh, and in that essay, he has this very nice line. He says, though eternal things don't have a cause, yet they must nevertheless be understood to have a reason. Right? And so he's arguing that even if the world goes back forever, the world could have been different than it is. And so there must be an explanation of why it is like this rather than some other way, of why there's something rather than nothing. And that formulation of the question that's standard today, why is there something rather than nothing, uh, is directly out of Leibniz. Uh, So he's kind of the, the key figure in terms of how we think of the argument today. But he's drawing very heavily, I think, on Thomas Aquinas who in turn is drawing on Maimonides and Ibn Sina. Um, if we bring things up kind of closer to the present, in a lot of recent philosophy, the question why there's something rather than nothing is seen as a reason for why the universe needs a cause outside itself; that there has to be kind of a cause prior to the Big Bang or whatever that that kicks things off. Mm. It seems to me that that's a mistake. And that's how I got started writing about contingency arguments. Because if you read all these people I just mentioned, um, particularly um, Maimonides, Aquinas, and Leibniz, they all say, the Bible says that the universe has a beginning in time, that the physical universe hasn't been around forever. And we believe it for that reason. But there's actually no way to prove that by reason to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible. Mm. Um, And so if we want to give an argument to atheists, we need an argument that doesn't assume that the universe has a beginning in time, an argument that's neutral on that question.
2: Mm.
1: And they think the argument from contingency, unlike the first cause argument, fits the bill. Um, and this goes back to Ibn Sina and many of his colleagues in the philosophic tradition are often interpreted as actually believing that the universe has been around forever, that God has always been creating the universe. So the universe depends on God, God creates it, but God has always been creating it because God is immutable. And so it couldn't have been that, like, at one time God wasn't creating and then God started creating. Um, and, and that view in Judaism, Christianity and Islam is often regarded as radical. So Maimonides and Aquinas and Leibniz are carefully avoiding saying that, but they're also saying we're not in a position to prove that that's wrong by reason without appealing to the Bible. And so when we make our argument against the atheist, we're not gonna assume that the universe has a beginning in time. We're gonna be neutral on that point.
0: Okay. So that's what kind of dried you into contingency arguments then was like, Hey, like, Ooh, this is kind of fun or maybe not fun, but like, it's something super valuable that like, if we could prove like that God exists or there's a foundation without like even needing a beginning of the universe, like there's something super valuable here.
1: Right. So I think that, I think that the versions of when people say they're doing the argument from contingency, but then they give an argument that concludes that God was the first cause of the universe. Um, I think they're kind of selling the argument short, that they're not getting right what its advantages are. Mm -hmm. And the big advantage is that, so suppose the universe was eternal, as Leibniz says, although eternal things don't have a cause, nevertheless, they must be understood to have a reason. There's still this question about what the explanation is for why the universe is as it is rather than otherwise. And if we're gonna get back to an ultimately satisfactory explanation, then it's going to be a a necessary being. And perhaps we can argue that there's good reason to suppose that it's going to have some of the attributes of the traditional God.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful, Kenny. So I appreciate that. So, how do contingency arguments kind of like break up? Because you talked about like identifying like, a, like some sort of foundation, um, but you don't have to like necessarily like be like, it doesn't have to be a first cause. Like, how do you break up these arguments to understand? Like, what do you mean here by a
1: contingency argument? Yeah. So I guess if you're going to divide them, you're going to think about what kind of explanation do they provide or how do they see the ultimate explanation as going? Mm hmm. And so the traditional ones that you'll get in, like Ibn Sina and Aquinas, are going to be arguments that have some notion of dependency in them, right? Mm-hmm. That a contingent thing is a thing that depends on something else. But we can't have the the dependence going back forever. It has to it has to stop somewhere. A way of thinking about this, Leibniz uses this phrase "borrowed reality," not in this context but in another context that I think is a great phrase for thinking about what's going on here, that the dependent things, things that depend metaphysically or ontologically on others, they borrow their reality from the things they uh, depend on. They derive it from the things they depend on. And that chain can't go back forever, just like you can't um, like keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing um, a shovel without getting back to somebody who actually has a shovel, right? Um, the That's the that's the idea of these dependency-based ones. Some people do, as we mentioned, formulate it in terms of causation. I think if they mean causation in an ordinary sort of sense, that's a mistake. If they have some kind of weird analogy view, if like, a, you know, Thomists, then if they have some kind of analogy view, then maybe it's not different from the dependency or grounding version, Mm -hmm. and um, this notion of grounding is the notion that I use, which I kind of think is the correct way of explaining in our terms today what those uh, classical philosophers had in mind.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so like the classical philosophers then, like in your view, Kenny, what we're trying to kind of like almost like draw at here is like, the, like, what does it mean like to have dependency then? Like, like the different kinds of dependency? Because obviously like that's kind of drawn at the principle of sufficient reason, but there's obviously different versions of the principle of sufficient reason.
1: Yeah, so some versions of the argument um, depend on this notion, which some people have, have criticized, right? That um, created things or physical things, the kinds of things that we are, require a certain sort of, that they have to be dependent in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And in some kind of way that is explained by God's creating and sustaining or provided by God's creating and sustaining. And some people have thought, you know, why would an atheist endorse that? Yeah. Um, There is, you know, a general kind of of argument that, um, well, look, our essence doesn't include existence, right? There's Mm -hmm. no matter how much you understand about the kind of being I am, that doesn't provide any explanation of why I should exist. It has to be extrinsic to me. Somebody might say, couldn't that be causal? Right. Um, What I think is that this approach through grounding, where we talk about the ontological dependence or ontological explanation, metaphysical explanation of how uh, more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things in a non-causal way, that there's a kind of explanatory work that that does that can't really be had elsewhere. And so this uh, idea of our existence isn't as, Shemekhda-Skupta calls it an autonomous fact. It's not self-explanatory. It's the sort of thing that cries out for explanation. There's a kind of explanation in these grounding terms that's desirable if we can get it, even if we're not assuming the principle of sufficient reason from the outset. Mm. It's just kind of a methodological principle that we should explain everything we can explain as well as we can.
0: Mm. So what's the difference then, like, obviously Kenny like you're big into like grounding and like like how that's going to provide a strong argument for god because that's what you do in your debate book with gramsci which is like super valuable so can you just like help people like as we start to dive into these contingency arguments like what's the difference between like a contingency argument from like a causal like way or something like that versus like the grounding type of argument that you think is like the most sure. powerful
1: yeah so grounding is uh, the the definition I give is it's the relation or family of relations whereby more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things. And a large part of kind of how I defend that idea, I mean, it's it's a pretty popular idea in philosophy today among both theist and atheist metaphysicians. But the way I kind of defend it is by arguing that we need it for both common sense and scientific examples, that there's some kind of relation of dependence of less fundamental things on more fundamental things that isn't just a matter of our ways of talking or thinking, but actually is, you know, fact about the world. And so examples are the way a statue depends on the clay that it's made of, uh, that's not an identity relation, because if you smash it, the clay still exists, but the statue doesn't. Um, the way a, a dollar bill depends on the paper it's printed on. So if the kind of um, United States, Federal Reserve banking system ceases to exist, then those things aren't really dollars anymore. They don't have any of the attributes of dollars, but there's, the paper's still around. Um, or in scientific cases, the way in which we get the um, uh, genes from DNA, or the way in which we get gases from the motion molecules. If you look at the philosophers of science who've tried to work out the details of those kinds of cases, uh, those differences, those relations, it's really hard to think of them as just artifacts of our ways of thinking and speaking, rather than ways the world really is. you know there are gases. They depend on, but aren't the same thing as uh, large collections of molecules behaving in a certain way. And so these mm-hmm. are the sort of examples we're thinking of. And then the claim is, um, anything that uh, kind of calls out for explanation, including anything that's that's contingent, anything that could be otherwise. It could have that kind of explanation in terms of some more fundamental reality. And we like to explain more things rather than fewer. And so when we're trying to give everything the kind of explanation it comes out for to explain, it calls out for to explain in what does my existence consist? What is it for me to exist? When we're trying to give those kinds of of explanations, we can, can go to something deeper. And if we're gonna get a maximally satisfying system of explanations, we're gonna have to bottom out in an explainer of a certain sort, an explainer whose existence would be an autonomous fact, wouldn't call out for any further explanation. Um, and that is, is basically the argument that in order to get this maximally satisfying explanatory structure, we're going to need to bottom out in one explainer, a necessary being who, as Leibniz says, carries the reason for its existence within itself.
0: Mm. Okay. So would it be like all grounding then is going to kind of like level down into God's like, for example, like, you could say, like, what grounds the statue, the clay, and you could say what grounds the clay, something else, and what grounds that, da, 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 and you could get down to God. Is that kind of what you think we can do?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just it. God is the deeper reality that that constitutes or makes for the existence of the universe.
2: Mm.
0: So this is helpful, and I want to, like, come back to this. Um, so you think this is the best form of, like, an argument, like, a contingency argument, Kenny, it would be something like this, right? Yeah. So, can you help like maybe for people that are like, well, like why God? Like why would God explain like this grounding chain here? Um like like help build the case for like why I think it'd be something like a divine being here.
1: Yeah. So, what we need here and you know, this is always this is going to be a bit more of a of a sketch than a detailed argument. I think Something that we could use more of in philosophy is people trying to build out um, other possibilities for this kind of ultimate reality besides, you know in English language philosophy. It's always an Abrahamic sort of God or Anselmian sort of God. Um, so I, So I'd like to see more detailed possibilities worked out. But the reason why this God is a sort of attractive hypothesis here, So in the first place, we're gonna need a being whose essence includes existence, right? One Mm -hmm. whose very nature it is to exist carries the reason of its existence within itself. And we need that being to explain the universe we observe. right? But we need it to explain the universe we observe in a way that doesn't make everything necessary. Because the whole place we started is that the universe could have been otherwise. And that's one of the reasons it calls out for explanation. And there's lots of reasons for believing the universe could have been otherwise uh, from, from kind of common sense and the practical world and from physics and, and so on. Um, and so the universe could have been otherwise. So how do we get a complete and satisfying explanation that doesn't make everything necessary? Well, one kind of explanation that does that is the appeal to a free and rational choice. So by rational choice, I mean a, rational, uh, a choice made for reasons. And I maintain that regardless of your theory of free will, you should accept that a, um, a free and rational choice is fully explained in terms of the agent's reasons but not in such a way as to that those reasons necessitate that outcome, Mm. that it's necessary that if the agent has those reasons, then the agent acts that way. So if you you think about an analogy, think about somebody who's on trial for committing a crime, right? Uh, The prosecutor needs to show that the person had a motive, Mm. right? that motive is a, a collection of reasons that explains why the person allegedly acted the way they did, right? So the prosecutor needs to give an explanation of, of why the person would have done that, right? To explain the crime. But if we thought that those motives necessitated the outcome so that the like prosecutor's explanation totally like, bypasses any kind of choice, and just goes straight to the action. Then you'd have the basis for like some kind of insanity plea or something, right? Um, if the if the person was if whatever those impulses were were so overwhelming that the person didn't really make a choice between alternatives. And so the the claim is that when we describe something as a free and rational choice that means that we can give a full explanation of it while still regarding it as a choice between alternatives. And those alternatives that the agent choose be- chooses between are going to serve as the other ways the world could be that, uh, that give us the kind of contingency that we're looking for. And that's why a free and rational being, perhaps a perfectly free and perfectly rational being, who uh who chooses between these alternatives which world is going to be actual um is ideally suited to do the explanatory work that's needed in the contingency argument
2: mm.
0: okay this is helpful kenny so when we're thinking about like this like rough sketch of a contingency argument that you're bringing here what you're trying to draw is like hey we have like this grounding thing where like there are these grounding relations like look at like Clay and statues, or like money and like like the actual like physical dollar, like genes and DNA and whatnot, and all these you can keep asking like, well, what grounds that and what grounds that, and it's gonna get down to some sort of like base layer. Like this is what grounds everything, everything existence, you, me, everything. Um. So then you're trying to say, well, like, what would this be? And you're trying to think that like maybe like a free being is necessary for like us to have that contingency. Because if it's not free, then it's like, well, everything's just grounded and it had to be that way, and it's necessary Mm -hmm. and. that's icky. No one wants that. Um, that's what you're getting at here. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think about then, Kenny, and maybe this is gonna get into like some idealism stuff, but like why God? Like, I, like we got the like this contingency idea, and I think that's super helpful. But some people might be like, Well, what if it's just like quirks down to the bottom and like that's right. that and it's material and yeah. you Everything's necessary, so what? Deal with it. Um, and like something like that. Like, why think that like we're gonna have something like divine like that grounds all these like apparently like physical things? Like you can like someone's like, well, Kenny, I can just punch my hand into a wall and feel it. Um, that's not like feeling the ground level of like God, so to speak. So what are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I do I kind of like worldview comparison as an approach to philosophy of religion. I talked about that a bit in the book and and because I think, in terms of worldview comparison, I think a lot about what I think are the best atheistic worldviews and the best versions of naturalism. Right. That's that's kind of an important question for how I'm looking at things. And I do think the best version of the best versions of naturalism um, are going to say, uh, look, at the end of the day, we're just trying to get down to the smallest collection of brute facts that we can have. Right. Where brute mm. facts are facts that cry out for explanation but nevertheless don't have one right yeah. and they're going to say like it's better to accept a few brute facts than to go on a bunch of you know metaphysical flights of fancy and posit a bunch of stuff that doesn't have a basis in science and I sort of you know I, I feel the attraction of that sort of view but I also think there just is this principle right that if things can be explained, then we want to explain them. And if there's a coherent theory that, that works for making sense of the world, that explains that stuff that the opposing theory doesn't explain, then, well, at least we ought to take it very seriously. It seems like something that, that um, yeah, that, that we might even accept.
2: Mm.
1: So, you know, in the debate book, I also appeal to an argument from religious experience I'm not sure that if you were relying on the contingency argument alone, you know, you might be, it's a reason for thinking one version of theism is kind of attractive. It might not be a reason to, to make the decision if you're unsure, uh, because there's there's things to be said on both sides. But uh, But I do think kind of, there's something advantageous here just about explaining more rather than less mm-hmm. and without going beyond the science i think there's a limit to how much you can accomplish in terms of ultimate explanation and explanatory unification
0: mm-hmm. okay so you'd say like well like maybe there is a cost here like maybe it's a little mm-hmm. less simple but like there's a big payoff like we're looking like at comparing like this like hypothesis of like to like theism um where we're like we can still get this contingency Um, which is super valuable. And like maybe there's a cost, maybe it's a little more complex, but it's better than like that not like comparing it to like a naturalism view where it just ends out at like a material bottom, and like maybe that's a little more simpler, but like in terms of like its explanatory power, like it's gonna take a big hit saying that
1: like everything's necessary. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard to say which is more complex. This is something Mm -hmm. Ram and I get into the book because Mm -hmm. the kind of theism that I endorse. Is a view on which the whole physical reality, all the stuff that the naturalist believes in, is explained and unified by one simple being at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and normally, I mean, there's a way in which that's positing more stuff. Just like you know, when you posit atoms which are unobserved, instead of just believing in tables and grass and things, you're there's a sense in which you're positing more stuff, right? But the stuff you're positing is allowing you to give a a deeper, more thorough, and more unified explanation of the stuff you already agreed in, you already believed Mm -hmm. in. Yeah. Uh, And so there's a sense in which that's actually simpler, right, it it explains and unifies, though there is also this concern that you're believing in more stuff that you didn't necessarily have to believe in.
0: Mm. Okay, so that's helpful and i think like the simplicity debate like in comparing like theories is super like challenging because there's a lot of different like views on like like i remember like the debate book with graham like maybe when you think about simplicity you're thinking about differently than like graham does and like i think about it differently and like there's definitely that battle there um where i don't think you would not you or i would rather like be ready and easily say oh yeah like any version of atheism is just simpler than theism like de facto like there's obviously a lot more here so what do you think, Kenny, about, like, anything else about, like, building a case? Like, we're going from, like, some sort of, like, foundation um, through grounding to, like, it being, like, God or, like, divine-like?
1: Right. So we have this this reason that a, a free and rational choice can provide the explanation, the kind of explanation that we want. And so free and rational choice is a, a good place to go. We also have the whole universe is grounded in that being, and that being is necessary and as it were enters into the essence of created things because grounds enter into the essence of what they ground so Mm -hmm. it's it's part of what it is to be me to be dependent on god according to this view Mm -hmm. um that's that's just part of part of what it is to be me and um once you have this kind of view then it's very natural to start thinking well No matter how the world was, it would have been dependent on God in this way. Nothing could possibly exist that didn't depend on God in this way. And it sounds like we're getting some kind of sovereignty and omnipotence and so forth out of this. If we're trying to give a thorough explanation in terms of God's reasons, then the kind of thoroughness of the explanation might depend on uh, God knowing all the reasons there are all the possible worlds and the pros and cons of all of them. And that's also gonna be simpler in certain ways than taking God's power or knowledge to be limited. Um, and you might also think if there was some kind of limitation to God's power or God's freedom, then that would have to have some kind of explanation external to God. And that would you know, then not get us the ultimately satisfying explanatory structure. So I'm not sure you can, uh, I think you'll have to make a lot of controversial assumptions on the way if you wanna give some kind of fully rigorous deductive argument. But if we think of it in more of a theory building way about what kind of notion do we have or can we construct that gives us a being that's a plausible candidate for playing that explanatory role, uh, I think there's a lot that can be said in favor of many of the traditional divine attributes from that perspective.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. So, one thing I'm wondering about here, Kenny, is like, how do you get to like um, there being like a source of all grounding or something like that to like God being like perfectly good? Because um, like theists want to say, especially Christian theists, God is perfectly good. Like, how do we get there?
1: Uh, yeah. Not not with this argument, I don't think. I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe there's, there, So I think you could derive perfect goodness from perfect rationality Mm -hmm. um, because I'm a Kantian about ethics. So Mm -hmm. you might be able, you can kind of make that plausible in that way. The trouble is if you're relying on just this argument about explanation, uh, ultimate explanation of our universe, and trying to say that our universe rather than another exists because God so chose and God chose for reasons and so forth. Um, our, our universe, it it doesn't look like what we would expect if, Mm -hmm. if a perfectly good being was just able to choose whatever universe that being wanted. Mm -hmm. It's there's the, so you're kind of running up against the problem of evil here. Um, I think that you can, so I think there's some motivation for perfect goodness coming from the like, well, we're trying to explain everything in terms of God's reasons. And that explanation is going to be neatest and cleanest if God is aware of all the reasons there are and perfectly responsive to them. And that's going to include somehow the moral reasons, whether, you know, whatever kind of theory about that you have. Um, That gives some motivation. But I think, uh, I think at some point, this argument from religious experience and testimony of religious experience and so forth is probably gonna be needed for further support of some of the claims about traditional theism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can kind of make it plausible in terms of this cosmological argument, and then we're gonna bring in religious experience and other factors. To um, to try to kind of seal the deal, I guess.
0: Yeah, so we can get like me. So I'm trying to think like with like a contingency like grounding argument that you're bringing, Kenny. We can get the power. It seems like because like God would be the source of all things. um Is the like the idea of it being like a mind? Is it something like this is your theory, or do you think you can get like it being a mind from like grounding? Like wh- where are you with like God being a mind, or what is, um, like, is God yeah. a mind? Like because obviously there's a lot of you know, classical theory is, like punching me in the face right now. Like, like, like what, what's going on here?
1: Right. So, so Leibniz, Leibniz mm-hmm. says, uh, look, and I, I interpret Leibniz as a kind of Protestant neo-Thomist. I think, I think Leibniz is really heavily influenced by Aquinas, but he says, look, um, the, the kind of God we're talking about has will and intellect, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is knows what the poss- all the possible creations are and chooses among them and we don't get this kind of explanation without that mm-hmm. um now if you're a Thomist and you say well we mean those things analogically right it's not like our will and intellect it's different from us well of course it's different from us um right particularly if god is atemporal, god's not dependent on like understanding things because of Sensory experience, and of course, it's different from us, but in some sense, in order for the explanation to work, we have to have will and intellect. And if we've got will and intellect, we might as well call that being a mind. Um, and if uh, if Thomists are um, if you and if you want to be a Thomist, you, you should say we mean that analogically, you shouldn't say God is not a mind, you should say. God is not a mind in the same sense that i am or in the same sense that i have a mind but in some but but god is analogically a mind um that is we kind of stretch our concept of mind by applying it to god but aquinas himself is effectively using that concept right mm-hmm. the concept of a being who has understanding and will yeah um so you know, if you're if you're expressing things in uh, Thomistic jargon or in the Thomistic tradition or something, you might have a reason for saying God is not a mind. But at least in an analogical sense, the Thomistic God does have understanding and will.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's the understanding and will. Um, is that what well, do you say? Like God's knowledge does that come from him like grounding all things? Is that where that's kind of coming from?
1: Um. Yeah. So, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of, I guess this is a place, this is one of many places where I am kind of broadly Thomistic in my approach. So, um, and Leibniz is broadly Thomistic as well. God knows um, what God has, God knows all the possible creations that God chooses among. God knows the options that God chooses among, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And those options encompass all the ways that the world could be. Uh, And actually, I've I've got papers arguing that they even encompass ways the world couldn't be. Uh, Even even impossibilities, according to me, are among the the options that God knows and chooses among. Um, And so that's gonna get us kinda, yeah, that God uh, is gonna know every detail of all those possible creations in order for uh, God's free and rational choice to fully explain the universe uh, and then there's some questions about how we're gonna deal with creaturely free will and whatnot which um, is also something I've written a bit about but it's a that's a pretty deep puzzle
0: <laughs> yeah free will is definitely interesting and I was thinking even like with free will and like like rounding like what would explain maybe be like one choice versus like another when you're looking even like deeper into what's going on on here. So that's interesting. Um, anything else, Kenny, before we get into some objections about like building the case from like there being some sort of like foundation of all grounding uh, to it being like God?
1: Yeah. So, so I guess I just, uh, let me just emphasize again that this concept of grounding is very popular in contemporary metaphysics. It's not something that's being made up ad hoc for this kind of uh, theistic purpose, but I, I think you know, when we have that concept and a scoop to this concept distinction between autonomous and substantive facts, and we're looking for a maximally satisfying explanation that kind of from a theory building perspective, broadly classical theism gets to looking really good.
2: Mm, okay. Well,
0: that's super cool, Kenny. Um, I love that. So, Let's get to some objections. Um, maybe before I get to some that I've thought about, like what do you think are like the best objections to like contingency arguments?
1: Yeah. So um, I mean, so one thing is some people do reject the the concept of of grounding, uh, but of course there are other contingency arguments than that. Another thing is um, every contingency argument is going to either need. Um, a sufficiently comprehensive entity or else plural reference. Now that those are kind of confusing technical terms. So, mm-hmm. so let me unpack. Um, we say, why is there something rather than nothing? Or why is there anything at all? Um, some people are going to say, look, uh, we just explain all the individual things, right? Hume said, if I, if, uh, you ask me to explain 20 particles of matter, and I explain each one of the 20. And then you ask me again to explain the 20. I would think that was very unreasonable, mm-hmm. right? Because I explained every one. And so some people think, if we can explain every kind of thing in the universe, there's no further question about explaining the universe as a whole. And they would think that's true, even if all those explanations are kind of internal. Like if the universe is eternal and everything's caused by something before it, right? Then we've got an explanation of everything. Or even if it goes in a circle, maybe that's fine, some people think. So what you need is to require that explanations aren't allowed to go in circles. And then you need some kind of entity that's inclusive enough that anything that wasn't part of it wouldn't be naturalistically acceptable So it needs to make sense to like talk about the physical universe as a whole as being one thing that needs one explanation rather than separating it into its parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And what plural reference does is you can say, oh, no, we want to talk about the explanation of all the physical things. Yeah. Regardless of whether there is a set of all physical things or a composite made up of all physical things or something like that, we still can ask for an explanation of all the physical things. And again, that is controversial and raises some technical issues in the logic of explanation and quantifier logic and so forth. So um, those are kind of important technical objections. Um, And then as you've been pushing on, um, I think it's very plausible for atheists to say um, maybe there could be something else Besides a traditional sort of God, even though that explanatory role. Um, I think that's probably not going to be something that's found within science. I think it's probably going to go beyond science somehow, but there are going to be candidates that aren't traditional God.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful, Kenny. So just thinking about this more, one of the things like I've, I'm not really on Twitter anymore, but like when I, like I have it, but I don't check it. But like one of the things I know you were always talking about on Twitter is like an objection, maybe, this would be partially to like a contingency argument, also like the theism in general is like thinking about like what makes sense of like God's choice for creation, like why create mm-hmm. this world rather than another world. So maybe do you want to like flesh out that objection um, and talk about like, like, what do you think of this? Cause it's like really an interesting question. Like why would God create this world rather than another world? And like, how could that like do damage to the theist? Right.
1: So that is a really tough one for theism is that kind of targets the concept of God that's at the core. And in particular, the concept of free and rational choice. So the traditional God is supposed to be not only perfectly free, but also perfectly rational and perfectly good, right? And once we get there, then it seems like if it's essential to God to be perfectly good and perfectly rational, then um, God can't do otherwise than the best, right? That it's it's now necessary or essential to God that God chooses whatever is best. And their interpretation, it, it seems to me, um, I'm, I'm not a medievalist and I'm not an Islamic philosophy scholar, but it looks to me just reading the text in translation, like Ibn Sina just actually endorses this point. that Because he says, um, for a perfect being, to know something is best is just the same thing as to choose it. And that's mm-hmm. why God's will is nothing different from God's knowledge. Because knowing that it's best is the same thing as choosing it. It's actually an imperfection in us that our knowledge of the best is different than our will. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leibniz wrestles really heavily with this point about how you kind of get the kind of divine freedom that's going to get a sufficiently robust form of contingency. Um, now, I think we need to think hard about what counts as a sufficiently robust form of contingency, especially if we're looking for a complete explanation. What kind of possibility of being otherwise do we want? Um, and so that's something that I that I think a lot about, but also about kind of, how can we make sense of the idea of God having the same reasons and choosing otherwise? or uh, the possibility of God having different reasons? You know, how could either of those approaches go? So I do think those are really deep and difficult puzzles. And I really like those kind of objections because they lead straight into so much interesting philosophy.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, Kenny. So I wonder like would God like God's choice to create like this world rather than like say another world would this do damage to, like a, like, a grounding view or a principle of sufficient reason? Like, is God's choice to create, say, this world rather than, like, a really good world, but maybe just a little yeah. bit different than ours? Um, Maybe, say, where, like, the Baltimore Ravens don't exist and the Pittsburgh Steelers, like, are, like, a lot better. Um, But, like, you know, it's still, like, a pretty good world. Obviously, slightly better if the Steelers are better. But, um, like, is that, like, just totally arbitrary and without explanation or, like, I, I guess it'd be different because I'm thinking more of like a traditional PSR. Um, Like, would that do damage to like a grounding argument? Like, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so
1: Leibniz and Spinoza have this really strong version of the PSR, right? That for, for everything, there has to be a reason why it's so rather than otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've got this really strong requirement of contrastive explanation. And then you tend, once you've kind of started there you do tend to get this idea that a lot of people still have today that I think is a mistake, that you haven't fully explained something unless you've like metaphysically ruled out all alternatives, right? So a complete explanation would have to be such that if it's true, then the thing couldn't be otherwise. Otherwise you haven't explained it yet. And I just, um, I think there are lots of reasons for rejecting that. Um, one that is discussed in the literature is that, um, it would imply that quantum physics doesn't completely explain things mm. because quantum physics, uh, has these probabilities in it. Right. And so for instance, um, when they explain the, uh, data that was read out from the Large Hadron Collider by positing the existence of the Higgs boson, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The explanation they're giving does not necessitate that exact data, right? This is all statistics and probabilities. But nevertheless, uh, we should say, and the naturalist especially should say, that's a complete explanation because otherwise kind of physics wouldn't be complete for explaining the physical world. Um, and I think there are similar things when we think about how we think about free will, that we kind of do think things are completely explained, um, even when they're not necessitated. I don't think lack of explanation could possibly make me more free. Right. I think that um in order for something to be an action of mine, it has to be explained in terms of me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when it's less explained, I have less ownership over it and it seems less like my action and that should make it less free and not more. So I think similarly in thinking about free will, we have to think that there are these complete explanations that don't necessitate.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So you're kind of saying then like, well, you can have like these free explanations, um, but we have a weaker version of like, the principle of sufficient reasoning or grounding, whatever it's going to be, where you don't have to need an explanation for like everything. Um, so you can allow for like these free choices with the, whatever view you can going to have.
1: Well, we're still going to say there's a complete explanation of everything. Okay. What we're not going to say is that explanations always necessitate what they explain.
2: Mm, okay. So it's
1: completely explained, even though the explanation is compatible with certain alternatives to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the story.
0: Okay. I got you. Okay, that's helpful, Kenny. So I wanted to. So we talked about like arbitrary creation and like that kind of built into like the free will question. And you're going to say maybe similar things if like humans have free will, like there doesn't have to be some like necessitating explanation for like each choice we have. Like there can be like we can have a full picture of the world with like a version of like explanation or the PSR that can explain like even like why there is free will and not have like a full contra- complete like deterministic explanation. So you're kind of cool with that.
1: Yeah, I'm not super committed to libertarian views of free will, Um, but even most compatibilist views still require, you know, that there's typically a metaphysical possibility of doing otherwise. Um, They just don't think that it has to be kind of physically possible that you do otherwise in exactly the same situation down to the least detail. So I'm not, I'm kind of open on the details of the question of free will, but I think plausible views of it require that we allow these sorts of indeterministic explanations.
0: Mm. Okay, that's helpful, Kenny. So another objection, like thinking about grounding, um, and I'm just trying to understand, like maybe like, I don't even know what I'm thinking here, but I just kind of this thought. Um, But we have like this idea of like, they're they're, like, there is grounding, like a statue in clay, um, money and like the paper, like things like this um and like we're trying to say that like as the theist like it all leads to like one source like this like the foundation that grounds all things which is god um but could someone maybe come back and argue like well what if like some of this grounding over here on the right leads to like maybe one thing over here and some of this grounding on the left leads to another thing and some of this third grounding kind of bottoms out in, like something else like could you have like a multiple layers of grounding like is that even possible and like if so like how would this challenge like your, yeah, your yeah. Life. So
1: and that would be the more standard view in the grounding literature is that it doesn't go all the way back. Not everything goes back to one thing. Okay. Um right Jonathan Schaffer is an atheist philosopher who also thinks everything goes back to one thing. But the more mm-hmm. common view would be that there are kind of multiple chains that bottom out in different things. Yeah. Now here's the thing. If we're going to get this complete explanation in terms of um in, in grounding terms and come back to an autonomous fact, again, it's going to have to be something whose essence somehow includes existence. And so the puzzle becomes, if you have multiple essentially existing things, how you distinguish them from one another and how they differ from one another. Mm -hmm. And if we're getting complete explanation, then we kind of, um, we can't have these arbitrary, um, contingent features figuring into that. And so there's going to have to be um, some kind of explanation of um, how these multiple essentially existing beings can be individuated from one another. And so if you think, as some classical theists do, that God's essence literally just is existence and nothing else, that God is like infinite or perfect being, the thing that exists the most or the most perfectly... Um, or something like that, then you're gonna have a good account of why this like essence includes existence thing is gonna imply a kind of uniqueness because there's not going to be a way of individuating multiple essentially existing beings. Um, so I'm not sure if I am committed to the full details of that story, but I think there's a pretty plausible motivation for thinking that this kind of, again, from a theory building perspective, uh, not just simplicity, but also these further additional concerns about individuation, uh, give a reason for supposing that everything comes back to one essentially existing being who's unique.
2: Mm.
0: Gotcha. Okay. That's super helpful, Kenny. And I also think that like, it's, it's just a lot simpler. Like, it just seems a lot simpler to me that there would be like this one necessary, like unifying being versus like something over here and something over here. Um, yeah, it just seems a lot more simple to say there's just one thing.
2: Yeah.
0: So the last kind of objection, Kenny is just thinking about like, what would you say to someone that just rejects grounding altogether? Like someone's like, Hey, Kenny, you got all this like philosophical mumbo jumbo. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like grounding isn't real. Like things just like the pen is the pen money, like the dollar is a dollar and the money is just a concept in our minds. Like how would you respond to someone who rejects? it? Yeah.
1: So I just, again, I'm going to, push them to look at the details of the case and at the, uh, the metaphysics literature that is independent of the question of God, right? That's not thinking about God, let's think about those cases and uh, challenge them to figure out how they're working out the details. So what I say is that you just really can't make sense of the empirical details by thinking about translation by thinking that it's just some kind of shorthand we've invented to say something that would be really long and complicated to say otherwise, that just doesn't make sense of the empirical facts and the connection and how we're conceptualizing these things. And so that debate would have to uh, to go into those details. And it's one of the most explored topics in analytic metaphysics in the past 15 years or so. So um, there's there's a lot to to explore there a lot of work that others have done
2: mm. So you're
0: saying it's not just some like christian mumbo-jumbo to try to get a contingency argument up from the ground but like there's a lot of like really like this is not something that's just like christians use for arguments But there's a lot of like actual like arguments from people like you talked about even Jonathan schaefer who's an atheist um we're saying like this is a real phenomena like that's a part of the world that we live in
1: right and and so really, if you go back to, there's this classic paper by Jerry Fodor, another atheist uh, from way back in the 1970s, called, um, it's called Special Sciences or the Disunity of Science as a Working Hypothesis. And um, what he's, what he's arguing there is that these, these logical positivists earlier in the 20th century, who were thinking, oh, we have this working hypothesis that everything is just a shorthand for physics, right? If like we talk about biology and psychology and whatever, but those are just like abbreviations to try to say more briefly. And it's really physics is the ultimate science and these other so-called special sciences are... Well, and, and Fodor all the way back then is arguing, like if you just pay attention to how science actually works, instead of doing some wishful thinking about how you wish science worked, then then you'll see that it is not like that. Um, and so to me the strongest arguments come from people who are paying attention, paying careful attention to the details of scientific theories. Um, not all of these people like the term grounding, but all of them, I mean but not literally all of them, philosophers never agree on anything. But the, the kind of consensus or most popular view is now that we need some kind of what's called interlevel metaphysics that we need to distinguish between more fundamental things and less fundamental things and posit some kind of dependence or explanation um, of the less fundamental things on the more fundamental. And, and I'm just using grounding for that very general notion, not for kind of a very specific controversial um, account of what that, uh, of what that relation has to be like.
0: Mm, That's awesome. Kenny. Do you think that, um, philosophers like, would all philosophers agree that no philosophers agree on everything?
1: (laughs) Um, that's, that's, uh, it's, yeah. So that might be, maybe that's one thing that all philosophers agree on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Myth debunked right there. We got it. Yeah, yeah, that might
1: be it. We might have found a consensus.
0: (laughs) Um, Kenny, this has been a super awesome conversation and I feel like I've learned so much and there's so much just to like process as I like go through this. Um, Do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here?
1: Well, just to say, uh, like I was saying earlier, I really invite this theory building and worldview comparison approach. I do think there's a lot of logical space that hasn't been explored about how you might think of these issues of ultimate explanations and what kinds of models might serve as alternatives to classical theism. And I think that even people who are committed to classical theism uh, or to some form of uh, religion or whatever theistic religion, uh, even those people have a lot to learn from seeing those alternatives explored and worked out in detail. And so that's an area in which I I really welcome contributions from a a wider variety of philosophers.
0: Well, Kenny, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, It's great to chat again. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I'll leave a link down below um, to your website so people can follow you, connect with you, things like that. And yeah, anything else you want to like share or plug before we wrap up here?
1: Um, I, I think you've covered everything. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed this conversation, um, and I hope everyone listening found this like super edifying in your journey. Just thinking about things like this. Uh, if you like it here in Apologetics, I encourage you to leave subscribe and leave a like. That'd be super huge. We really appreciate you just tuning in and listening. Um, it's super huge, and we appreciate that. Uh, if you value what you do, go become a patron at patreoncom slash apologetics. So, Kenny, thank you so much one last time for coming on. Um, great talking with you. Thank you. And have a good one, everyone. God bless, and we will catch you next time.